Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, May 9th, the washing dishes on an infomercial edition. I'm Dan Kois. I'm a writer and editor at Slate and the author of How to Be a Family, coming out in September. I'm the dad of Lyra, who just turned 14, and Harper, who's 11. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 17, Teddy, who is 16, and my stepdaughter, Lily, who is 18. And I'm Carvel Wallace, a writer and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I'm the father to Georgia, who is 13, and Ezra, who is 16. Today on the show, we're talking to Dr. Darcy Lockman about her viral New York Times essay, What Good Dads Get Away With. Plus, we've got a listener question about a rude and ungrateful 13-year-old, which I cannot relate to as my rude and ungrateful child is 14 years old. <laughs> Plus, triumphs and fails, recommendations. And on Slate Plus, Rebecca is going to very patiently explain to me why real moms hate Mother's Day. But first, <laughs> oh, triumphs wow. and fails. Rebecca, <laughs> do you have a triumph or a fail today, Rebecca? <laughs> I have a fail. Um that is it is attached to my triumph of last time I was on the show talking about going on vacation with my kids and that is that my son Teddy on the way back from Mexico was the victim of a baggage handler theft um oh, no. when we yeah we had to land in a Dulles because we were doing like the immigration and customs, you know, check in border patrol stuff. And, you know, that thing where like you have to when you fly internationally, you got to pick up your bags and then drop them off again. It was that whole thing. So we got all of our suitcases that came around on the thing. And then all of a sudden, uh, Teddy's just his glasses case appears like alone on the, on the um, <laughs> conveyor belt. <laughs> he's like, that's weird. And he picks it up and his, and his, <laughs> his glasses were not in them. And he was super bummed because he loves his glasses. He loves them. A, I think they think he thinks he, you know, they make him look cool and smart and stuff. And also because he is very, very conscious of like trying to take good care of his things and like prove that he's not a kid who can't be trusted mm. with things like glasses and stuff. So he, when uh, it became clear after getting some help from the uh, very nice people at Dulles that like his glasses were not on the tarmac, they were not just floating around in a suitcase somewhere, uh, that the case had just fallen out of the bag. When it became clear at that point, it seemed like, oh, the, you know, the bag must have just unzipped and they fell out and your glasses are gone. And he was like devastated. He was so upset. He was like, I just got them a few weeks ago I want you to think I can take care of my things and I was like listen this is a freak accident like this is the kind of thing that sometimes happens when you travel you didn't do anything wrong you know it didn't ever occur to me to tell you like hey you should put your glasses like somewhere else in your suitcase like you know if you're not accustomed to traveling a lot like how do you know that the outside pocket isn't a place you should put certain things so fast forward a couple days uh, Teddy's dad who works at the bank where the kids have their checking accounts um, gets in touch with me and Teddy and is like, hey, there's a bunch of like mysterious charges on your debit card in Mexico. And because despite Teddy's trying super hard to show that he's like trustworthy and all this stuff, I immediately go to, oh, Teddy must bought a bunch of shit in Mexico with his debit card and like, you know, and, and must have like overrun his balance. I immediately go there because I'm a terrible person. And that is my fail. But no, it turns out that what clearly happened was his wallet was also in that outside pocket because when you look at all the charges, they're all at like 
filling stations and stuff in Cancun uh, after we left. So the, the wallet was taken from that pocket and the pocket was left open, which is then why his glasses fell out later. And so he was the victim of a crime. And um, in addition to sort of me immediately jumping to the conclusion wrongly, which I did not say out loud, thankfully, I just said, mm-hmm. may I That's see a trial. list of the... Yes, may, may, may I see a list of the things that were that were purchased so I can sort of get a sense of what may have happened here? Um, and so in addition to that, he's just been so, like, bummed out about this. Mm. And, like, the fail number two on my part is that, like, I've been – you know, and I'm not doing this to try to keep him calm. I'm just being nonchalant about it because to me, like – this is a shitty thing that can happen, right? Like, oh, you know, you lost your wallet or someone took your wallet and, you know, you have to, if you get a new debit card and if you get the bank to reverse all the charges. And he is really taking it much harder because for him it's like a character thing. Like, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. You know, now, like, my reputation is further besmirched uh, because my stuff was stolen mm. and someone was able to use my debit wow. card. And I'm just like, I'm like, it happens. It's okay. And I'm realizing like that's not working. Like, I think mm. just some time has to pass. But, you know, and then I realized just today when I was thinking about this, like, he actually was the victim of a crime. And it's his first time being the victim of a crime. And being a victim of a crime totally sucks. And I just didn't see it in that way initially when we were talking about it. So I realized that I have to, like readdress this with him and talk about it in those terms because trying to do the oh my god it's not your fault it's no big deal thing like did not do the trick so anyway that's what happened sort of a fail on a couple different levels of course the biggest fail being that some jackhole stole my kid's stuff from his suitcase uh at the cancun airport um but anyway that is the fail this week i feel for you does the being a victim of a crime sort of in some way countermand the, oh, I screwed up and it's my fault feeling? Like, is that a tool you can use to discuss that with him? I don't know. But I, I think that one, the one thing that I have to do is just talk about that because we never talked about it and, you know, how it feels to have someone like steal your stuff, you know, especially when you're a kid, you don't have a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not like... Uh, it's not like he can just, you know, take care of this on his own. Like he needs to get like his dad to help him with the bank stuff. And then he needed like me to sign a thing so we can get a new school ID. And, you know, Mm. it's not, um, you know, it's not the same problem as, you know, if, even if you're an adult and you have something valuable stolen, like you process it that way, like this, then this, then this, and it sucks. And I have to put in my insurance claim and I have to do whatever I have to do. But like, he just had his stuff taken. And I just don't think we ever talked about that. And I do think that that is what was contributing to, you know, him being bummed out um, and, you know, his sort of immediate going to like, I messed up, like I did something. You know what I mean? Was that, you know, we didn't, I didn't frame it that way. We didn't talk about it that way. And frankly, sadly, the way that I thought about it in my adult brain was this is like a thing that sometimes happens when you travel. I didn't think of it as you know, you were the victim of a theft. Um, so that I've just, re- I know we have to reset that and I think start from there. And I'm sure by now he's fine. It's been a few days. I haven't seen him in a couple of days, but I'm sure he's fine. But I, I, I do realize, I think that that led, that didn't help. It didn't help that we didn't think of it that way. It's so interesting about that because I think that, um, that uh, it's hard. F- One of the things that we forget about kids is that they're kids and they process things like kids, even adult things they process like kids. And like one of the ways in which that kind of like still developing brain shows up, it sounds like in what you're describing. And I know this with my, my own son, which I'll probably talk about is that they have a hard time separating, recognizing this sort of that certain messages about themselves have a shelf life. And like, Mm. 
the message that like, oh, I'm the one, I'm the mess up. I'm the one who's always losing things. I'm the one who can't get his shit together. They are, because they're still kids, they process that in like an inappropriate, like large, like a way that isn't really aligned with reality the same way that little kids think there's a monster under the bed because they saw one in a movie. It's like ki- mm. kids think that because they have been told that you have messed something up or because you've like dropped the ball on something or, or you, even you have a God forbid, you consistently do that. You have a habit of losing your jackets or whatever. They then think that that is the thing forever and that's always the thing. And no matter what happens, it's it goes back to that. So it's really hard for a kid mm. mind to process and separate out. I was the victim of a crime. This is not my fault with all the other times in which people have told me that it was my fault because I dropped the ball, wasn't conscientious, didn't pay attention, cost people money or whatever. It's really painful to watch, actually. It's one of the things that makes raising teenagers really hard, especially teenagers that don't know how to perform the way adults want them to. Yeah, that's a really good point. But is there also at least a little bit of value in in displaying the adult response to some of these things? Like, I don't don't want the result necessarily for me to respond to my kids' unnecessary panic about things with a matching unnecessary panic. I mean, I know I want Mm. to respect the way that they feel about things, but I also would like – like, I think it is valuable in some way, Rebecca, for your son to see that adults – that for adults, this is, like, not a big deal. Right. Well, yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. I I think that in order for you to say for adults, this isn't a big deal, you first have to acknowledge why it is a big deal to you. And that is what I just kind of missed. I missed that step. Right, right, right. Yeah, totally. Fair. Fair point. Yeah. Uh, All right, Carvel, how about you? Do you have a triumph or a fail? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's a triumph that becomes a fail that becomes a triumph and, you know, whatever. Like last week I said the triumph was that, or two weeks ago, I said the triumph was that we didn't make the situation worse with our teenagers. And I feel like that (laughs) continues. This week I had, we had, uh, uh, Georgia and I had like a, she had a full teenager moment out of nowhere on Sunday where she just, I asked her to do the dishes. Her Joe was gone. She went out of town this week. And so uh, it was like getting the kids to do chores was a little bit of a task, but I was on it and I was really to like get in the trenches and fight with them about it and they were making them do stuff that they, I guess they don't normally do and whatever Joe uh, Georgia I told Georgia to like if she could do the dishes before Joe gets home because having lived with Joe for a long time I know that she does not like to come home from trip from a trip and have stuff mess in the house it may not be quote unquote reasonable but I fully get that it makes her feel just kind of irritated and pissed off and I'm like no one should have that when they come home and so you should do the dishes before your mom gets home Georgia was like no I don't need to do them before I get home she'll just I'll just do them after like I don't know why we have to do it and I just was like come on man and so we had this like standoff and I was like you just out of respect for your mother who just gets irritated when she sees this don't do this like do the dishes now and it turned into such a weird standoff between us and even Ezra was like Georgia what are you doing but Georgia will periodically take one specific moment to take like a, just a stand. And then after that, she'll just lose perspective on everything. She'll be like, I don't care. Fuck you. Fuck you, mom. Fuck you, dad. Fuck you, Ezra. I didn't want to be a part of this family. Blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, what is happening right now? And uh, so we didn't make, I didn't make it worse. I just kind of like withstood the thing and ultimately the dishes got done, whatever. Uh, and then the next day we got news that Ezra is like failing geometry uh, and that it's like the second he's he's already has to make up two classes this summer because he didn't pass them last 
year and now he's got to make up geometry next summer because he didn't and it's just like turning into a whole thing and so there was a lot of uh panic about not panic and emotions about it joe and i had a very tense conversation that believe it or not somehow returned to division of labor because it turns out that's a real issue and the the triumph there is that we were able to successfully navigate that conversation without either of us losing it we both were like i feel this way i feel this way oh i didn't mean to say that i'm sorry that you felt that way i certainly didn't mean that here's what i think and we we were able to get through that and get back to the topic at hand which is what do we do about our son and how fearful we are for his future given his poor academic performance the whole thing all of it lands under this thing that i'm realizing which is that newsflash you can't control teenagers you can sometimes control teenagers and the fact that you sometimes that they sometimes do what you want gives you the illusion that you can actually make them do what you want all the time you literally cannot it's literally impossible no matter how good a parent you are or how bad a parent you are teenagers are going to do what they do and at a certain point and i said this two weeks ago but sometimes the best you can do is just not make it worse by flipping out on the kid or on your partner or launching into a sort of internalized flip out, which is depression and feeling shitty about your own parenting. Sometimes the best you can do is just avoid all those and live to fight another day. Uh, so my kids, I love them both. They're both doing great as human beings. Neither of them are behaving currently today exactly as I would like them to behave, but uh, we're doing the best we can. And I feel like that's our triumph. That's a good triumph. But I have a question. Yeah, I'm sure you the do. Dishes got done. Yeah. You said. Yeah. Who did the dishes? I did half of them. Georgia did the other half. Hmm. All right. I guess that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. I'm, thanks for your approval. <laughs> I mean, to a teenager, doing one dish feels like doing all the dishes. So, you know. Oh, my <laughs> God. They, I, I mean, it's like, fuck, they, I, you need, these kids need a fucking subpoena and a court order to do the tiniest of tasks. I'm like, what? world is this and like this is so different than how i was raised like when i was raised you just never said no to any grown-up ever about anything ever unless you were really willing to fight over it and in most cases you were you you did what the grown-up said and then you made faces at them behind their back and talk shit about them when you went in your room that was how you handled it and that is not the way my kids have been raised to handle things they say no when they want to say no and then I, that that bothers me but that's the situation that we're in I have mm. a part in the fact that that's the situation that we're in and that it is what it is. And I can't blame them for who they are because I actually raised them, which is something they love to point out when I get mad at them. Uh, and uh, sometimes you have to overcome your own parenting in order to parent effectively. It is absolutely true that every kid doing a single dish looks like the scene in the infomercial for a <laughs> service where they're like, doing dishes the old way is impossible. Totally. <laughs> Totally. Has this ever happened to you? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I've got a triumph this week. My triumph is, is fairly simple. I think it's a sort of, I was trying to hearken back to the days when parenting was simple, <laughs> um, or at least it seemed more simple. Yeah. So uh, a few weeks ago, um, when Alia was away, I was getting very uh, frustrated at how at our how our mornings were going. I felt like we were all just really scrambling, 
in the mornings. Um, I think just exacerbated by the fact that there was just one of me and two of them. So I was outnumbered all the time. But, you know, like we, someone would forget to pack a lunch or someone would forget to take a pill or I would forget that someone had an after school activity or they wouldn't know where I was or whatever. I know that it is like life hack 101 to, uh, you know, like plan ahead the night before. But I just never really have done that that much. Like that has not been a mode our family uses. When the kids go to bed, Ali and I are just like so grateful to have any time to ourselves that the last thing we want to do is think about tomorrow when we have to deal with them again. Um, but so my very, very simple, tiny triumph is that I have now started the night before, right before I go to bed, I just write a note about the following day. Um, you know, it has, you know, it says Friday at the top and it says, uh, you know, take your pill, put this in your lunch. Um, you have home ec after school. Don't forget. Uh, I'll be at the office, whatever kind of it's for the kids, you know, to just remind them of things that they need to do in the morning because I may or may not be there helping them. But really it's sort of for me, like it's a way to actually make myself think ahead about the next day and what it's going to look like and what we all should prioritize, not only in the morning, but like the whole time. And since Ali got back, I've still been doing this. I've been doing this most nights when the kids wake up in the morning, they have a note waiting for them. Um, and I draw a little picture on the note or I make a stupid joke on the note. Um, and now Harper uh, my younger daughter has started asking each night, oh, what will be on the note for tomorrow? And that's become her way of starting to think about, well, what does my day look like tomorrow? What are the, some of the things I will start to think about? Um, Lyra, eh, she's sometimes she looks at the note and pays attention to its contents, and sometimes she doesn't at all. But whatever. She'll get there. And I sort of worried when I started doing this that this would cause me to, like, already be obsessing about tomorrow today. But instead, I found that it sort of lets me take – all of tomorrow and put it on a piece of paper and then just like put it away while I'm asleep and I don't worry about it while I'm lying in bed. It's like done and down. I've gotten it out of my brain and I've gotten it into the family. And so it really works. So my triumph is doing something that any fuck, any fucking idiot already knows to do, <laughs> which is to spend even three minutes planning. And making a list. <laughs> <laughs> making yeah. made a list. You know, usually I'm just we not have a list ride. guy. <laughs> yeah. Really. <laughs> You've made eye calendar. That's foreshadowing analog, right? listeners for a conversation we're about to have. <laughs> no, it's good. People ask me all the time, like, how do you have a full-time job and have your podcasting business and, you know, parent, teenagers and whatever. And I'm like, because all I think about is what I have to do today. That's how. <laughs> it's all about what I'm doing today. And that's what you're doing. Right. List, But just those three minutes thinking about tomorrow really helps. <laughs> lists, are, lists are really where it's at. I'm a huge list guy. I have a terrible attention deficit situation i cannot pay attention to anything more than for more than 30 seconds at a time uh i get overloaded and overwhelmed and i've been that way my whole life lists are the thing that's that allows me to operate in some approximate facsimile of an of of, of a grown-up and it's uh, I'm, I'm into it yeah. <laughs> all right before we move on to our first topic and our guest for today uh here's some business so Slate has a parenting newsletter. In fact, I write it. Every week, I write an email to like 2,000 of my closest friends, uh, and it has links to this podcast, Mom and Dad are Fighting. It has links to Karen Feeding, Carvel's excellent parenting advice column, and to all of Slate's parenting pieces. Plus, I fill it with dad jokes. You can sign up for this parenting newsletter at slate.com slash parenting email. Please sign up. 
Plus, Slate Day is coming. June 8th in New York City, we are hosting 10 hours of podcasts and fun on two stages. Uh, if you're in New York that day with kids, you can come to the Mom and Dad Are Fighting afternoon play date. There will be music and crafts, plus away from the music and crafts, adult conversation while the kids are occupied. If you've managed to ditch your kids that day, I'm hosting Pop Culture Trivia with Nicole Cliff, Dana Stevens, Forrest Wickman, and many other folks. There will be beer. There's lots of other great events, too. You can get your tickets at slate.com slash live. As always, if you have a question you would like us to answer on air on Mom and Dad are Fighting, you can leave us a message at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Or you can email us at slate.com. You can send us an email, a regular text email. You can record your question using the voice memo app on your phone and send us that file. Uh, we'll answer your question if you send it to us. And finally, please check us out on Facebook. Just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. It's a really fun community. We moderate it so it doesn't get completely out of control. Um, and people ask really good questions and give really good advice. I love it. In Slate Plus today, we are talking about Mother's Day, why moms hate it. To hear segments like that and to get your ad-free podcast, sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program. It's a great way to support Slate.com and to support Mom and Dad are Fighting. For just 35 bucks for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing Mom and Dad are Fighting and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of the show and all the other great Slate shows, plus tons of other great benefits. If you'd like to support Mom and Dad are Fighting, go to Slate.com slash Mom and Dad Plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, onward. All right, today on Mom and Dad are Fighting, we have a guest joining us. This weekend, you may have read a piece in the New York Times called What Good Dads Get Away With, with the good in scare quotes. Uh, it is a really thought-provoking piece about a perennial issue in parenting circles, the division of labor in a two-parent mixed-gender household. We're very happy to have the author of that piece, Dr. Darcy Lockman, who's the author of a new book, All the Rage, Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership. Uh, hi, Darcy. Hi, Dr. Lockman. Thanks for joining us. Oh, Dan, please call me Darcy. Thanks for having me. Hi. So I want to start with a question about those scare quotes around good dads in the headline of that piece. Um, as yeah. someone who definitely considers himself a quote unquote good dad, I think it would be really useful for you to explain to our listeners who may or may not have read the piece, what your research and reporting found about guys who consider themselves good dads and the way that labor gets divided in such households. I think the stereotypes that we all have about dads in the past come straight from Mad Men. Um, I don't think that was always the way dads were thought of, but for a while it was, and we know that existed, and we know that things are a lot different today. So there's this idea of the modern involved father. He's sort of the anti-Dan Draper. Oh, I'm sorry, Don Draper. Um, he changes diapers. He shows up for dance recitals. He... Uh, I don't know, he maybe knows where the socks are kept. So the bar was so low at one point for fathers, and in that period, fewer mothers were in the workforce, um, that we just kind of go into parenting thinking things are so much better now. Dads are so good. And in some ways, of course, they are. They're much more involved with their children than they were, which is great for them. It's great for their kids. It's great for their wives. But that 
idea of the modern involved father has eclipsed this other reality, which is that mothers who work outside of the home still do about 65% of the childcare. And I can tell you, because I've been there, that, you know, that's a big discrepancy. The distance between 35 and 65% is a lot of time and a lot of work. So I think a lot of moms are surprised that the men they married, who they thought were devoted to equal partnership, then once the kids arrive, end up falling down on the job. So what, in your research and your reporting, what stands in the way of these good dads actually doing the work? Like, what did you find? <laughs> I think mostly that we do not realize how sexist we are. Um, you know, we've grown up in this world, both men and women, where men's needs, priorities, desires, pleasures are really prioritized. Men are clearly more important. And it's so internalized. And you just don't see it until you're living um, in close quarters. Um, so I think the, the the first problem is that no, that no one knows to expect it because we just think, well, of course, you know, the culture doesn't affect my relationship. It's totally separate. Um, we love each other. Of course we wouldn't, you know, we think of each other as equals. We wouldn't ever make assumptions based on gender just because society does. Um, so we start from this basis of assuming equality without ever making it a goal. Because why do you have to make it a goal if you just assume it's there? And then, you know, there's so much work to be done in parenting that when you have kids, everyone's doing more work. Um, mothers and fathers. So when the mother then goes to the father and says, hey, you know, I'm doing so much more. And the father's experience is just like, but I'm doing so much. Um, and I think men, from what I heard from people in my reporting, both men and women, men were often not um, willing to give enough credence to their wives' concerns. Um, the couples who, who successfully navigate this stuff are really relentless about checking in with, with each other, about how things are going in that regard. And if one spouse uh, doesn't want to hear it, and you know it's usually the father, because again, he does feel like he's doing a lot, the discussion doesn't ever really move, and neither does the needle on who's doing what. One of the things that struck me about your piece was the excuses, the sort of like groups of excuses that these couples have. And, you know, sort of the framing, first of all, that like, I'm very lucky, <laughs> but I'm also very unhappy with this thing. So there's like this need to sort of couch it, which I think I, I think might add to some of the disparity. <laughs> but one of the excuses and the one that resonates the most with me is um, somebody that you talk to says, you know, his wife wakes up on a Saturday morning. She has a list. I don't have a list. So, you know, she. If, there's a belief, he says, that if she's not going to do it, it won't get done. I like how he says there's a belief, not that um, she believes or that I believe, but there is a belief. <laughs> and, and just this idea that, like, she thinks of the stuff, so therefore, you know, I have to be told to think of it because I just don't. I don't think that way. I don't make the list. That's fascinating to me, and that resonates a hell of a lot with me. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's like the um, the cliche around nagging. You know, women nag. You know, women need to remind their husbands to do things that they should be doing on their own. But the the blame or the anger is always directed toward the person who's nagging without any suggestion that, oh, I live in this home. I should notice that the garbage needs to go out. So, yeah, I, I know that's <laughs> it seems along the same lines. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, that that was I had a similar thing that really struck me about reading this. And like I, I have lived this. I mean, that's just it's it was like it was it was I had so many feelings reading it because it was like 
wow, this person put a camera in our house and like recorded it. And that's amazing. Like, how did they know everything that we, you know, went through as a couple? But like one of the things that really struck me was um, how so many of the men who talked about why things are sort of go this way pointed out that, well, it's just my wife does things differently than I do. Like she either makes a list or she feels like this is really important. I was struck by the person who said that like, um, you know, my wife thinks these things are the guy from San Francisco. I said, my wife thinks these things are important and I don't necessarily think they are. It struck me. The question I had was, why is it that you don't just do stuff your wife's way instead of making her do stuff your way? Yeah. Like that's, that is the, that is the thing that I kept returning to is like, what is to be lost by doing stuff a different way then you would like to do it. Like, obviously, in a relationship, everyone has to do things differently, slightly differently in some way, shape, or form than is their default. And I wondered why we default to this idea that, like, the person who is doing the least is the person who's, like, right, and the person who's doing the most is the person who's doing extra. And I wondered, if, like, if you... You seem to, like, resonate with that observation, and I wonder what your what your personal thoughts are about that, having observed it. Okay, well, first of all, Carvel, you are not the first person to say to me that I must have had a video camera in their home. <laughs> That's the first thing I want to note. Um, this, the second thing is, you know, it's really interesting because I talked to this sociologist who writes a lot about gender issues, Michael Kimmel. He's written a bunch of books. And he said to me, he interviews men and they will say to him, you know, my wife says I should vacuum. So um, I'm, walking, I'm watching the baseball game the other day. She walks in and says, well, at least you could vacuum. So I vacuumed, but then she wasn't satisfied with the job I did. So I guess I'm just not going to do it anymore. <laughs> and he tells me this story and my immediate reaction is, well, yeah, yeah, you know, that makes sense. That's my immediate reaction. Mm. And then he, Michael Kimball goes on to say, you know, I said to the guy, if your boss gave you a report to do it, work. Work and you turn mm-hmm. it in and he said, you know, this isn't this isn't up to par. Would your response to him be, well, then I'm just not going to do it anymore? <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's that's fantastic. You know, I think this speaks to like internalized sexism because I'm kind of defeated right away. As soon as I hear that vacuum guy's story, mm. you know, the first part of it, I'm like, well, yeah, you know, if her standards are higher, I can see why he would just stop. So you're asking a really good question. And I heard that so many times from women, like one woman said to me, you know, if it were, if it were up to my husband, my kids would, would eat hamburger helper every night and I want them to eat healthy. So I'm just the one who has to do the cooking. So I heard that just again mm. and again from women. And it's so painful. Yeah, it because it raises that question of, OK, fine, if your husband believes it's fine to eat hamburger helper, why does he have to do that? That's, the, that's like the question, like, I get exactly. that you think, that, right. why don't you, you actually right. like split it up? But, some days you do hamburger helper, some days you do what your wife wants because that's what she wants. But I actually think it's more than that. Right. Why isn't there a discussion? What are our, what are our yes. agreed-upon standards for mm. meals for our children? And let's try to meet somewhere in the middle so we can Yes, and that's the that. thing right. about... What were we going to say, Rebecca? I mean, the thing I take umbrage with is what you said, Carvel, is like, why don't I do things the way she wants me to do? It's like... Why shouldn't you want those same things? Because that actually is a lot of what parenting is. A lot of what parenting is, is knowing when your kid's school vacation is. And a lot of parenting is, and and, and sort of to say like, you know, well, you know, do what she wants and learn that. Or how, or how about just deciding the right thing to do because you are 50% participant here is to learn that. You know what I mean? So the sort of like understanding that, yeah, yeah, it's, it's not about like sort of acquiescing to demands. 
Right. But that's part of what I'm saying is that like the, the way that you learn it's, it's for a variety of reasons that I don't know, completely know or understand uh, there. And it, I think it's different with every issue. I think feeding your kids hamburger helper every single night is a different thing than knowing when the school vacations are. And that's a, that in and of itself is a different thing than, than vacuuming the floor a specific way. And I think that what happens is that men lump all those things together as things my wife wants. Right. Or things my wife does. Yes. And they're not all the same. Some of them are like, like, is it possible that my wife, like, that that it's like a reasonable thing to think my wife is too concerned with one or another thing? That's fine. It is true that that's possible to think that and not be wrong. But it's also possible to think that it's important to her and therefore let's do it that way. Even if I don't think it's necessary, it's not harmful to do. And I think I think the one thing that links all of those examples, knowing when the scheduling is, vacuuming a certain way, serving hamburger helper every night, is that I think a lot of times men believe on some level that it's harmful to them to do things the way someone else has suggested they do them, hmm. not the way they first thought of them. Yeah, I think that's the fear. And that's why it becomes resistant. So one example, you know, right up in the top of your piece is, that is your husband having no idea when the kids don't have school and you being the one who always has to make the plan. So I'm very curious, given all the research that you've done on the subject, have you cracked this problem in your own family? Did you fix your husband and how did you do it? Um, huh. So my kids are now six and nine. They were three and six when I started this, when I first started writing the proposal. It was a lot harder when they were younger because their needs are so much more uh, draining in certain ways. Um, no one's in diapers anymore. No one's in a stroller anymore. No one's breastfeeding. So things have lightened up between us around this, I think, because I feel less drained. We are also both more aware of the things we do to sabotage this division of labor and we're both more on top of it. The problem was for us is, and I think for a lot of couples, I got such a head start in learning and experience and I have a cachet of knowledge that he doesn't. Babysitters, phone numbers, uh, what other parents we can call when we need child care, um, I get all the evites. You know, these are the things that mothers always say. So we were much more on it, certainly. Um, and I can see his effort, and I have to match it with mine. We, I, I would say we haven't, like, totally cracked it. There are still, still times when it's hard, but it's better. That's great. Can you talk a little bit about the reaction you've gotten to this piece, how you process and deal with that reaction, and just what, what things have been like for you since, since this kind of thing went viral? It's been really uh, overwhelming and interesting and exciting. I, you know, you never know what kind of reaction something's going to get. And I have just heard from woman after woman who has said, this is my life. And I know the reason that I wrote this book was because this was my life. And I really wanted to figure out why, you know, and I'm a psychologist now, but I used to be a journalist. So I thought, oh, I can figure out why I'm a reporter. So I kind of made this my mission. I was going to figure out why. Um, so I knew it touched a nerve with me. And then when the proposal went out, um, my my I have a literary agent who sent out a book proposal, and you know you get you get interest from editors. And the response to the proposal was really overwhelming. And my agent and I were like, "Ooh, okay." So 
but then, you know, you're working on a book for two years and then this came out and it was just like an avalanche of um, responses. So it's, I hope that I can move this for people. I feel like if I had read this book before I had kids, things would have gone a lot differently. So I think the responses I get and how much women are expressing how, yes, this is my experience, can really kind of um, grow into, I don't know, greater awareness and people doing things differently. So anyway, it's been great. I, I should just say it's been great. I've heard very few, like I kind of expected, you know, the way the internet is mm -hmm. to get trolled or right. whatever, but I've gotten very few crazy emails. It's been nice. <laughs> That's the sign that you've made a good argument. That book is called All the Rage, Mothers, Fathers, and the Myth of Equal Partnership. The piece in the New York Times is called What Good Dads Get Away With. Uh, thank you very much, Darcy Lockman, for coming on. Everyone should check out that book. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, now it's time for our listener question for the day. You can send us your question at momanddadatslate.com, type it out in an email, or record yourself via your voice memo app. Here's today's. Dear Mom and Dad are fighting, I am a longtime devoted listener to your show, and I really need your help right now. My daughter turns 13 this month and has become very, very difficult to deal with. She's extremely moody and is often outright rude to her dad and me. We get a constant annoyed tone from her rolled eyes, one-word answers to caring texts that we send her, etc., etc. She has also displayed this behavior to her grandparents, and it's really getting out of control. She is embarrassed to be seen with us and usually walks way ahead of us. Often, she will not even respond if we try to talk to her in public. She withdraws to her room daily and shows little interest in anything other than her phone, clothing, and friends. It's hard to have a conversation with her or find things to do that we can enjoy together. I know that this is fairly stereotypical teenage behavior, but her dad and I do not want to condone outright rude behavior. Furthermore, we work our butts off to provide for her and spend much of our waking hours driving her around. We are growing very resentful that she takes everything that we do for granted. We expect that she, at the very least, treat us with respect. Of course, sometimes she's probably tired or stressed or sad, and that may be why she acts out. But we still feel she needs to learn how to treat others in a kind manner, even if she doesn't feel 100%. What do you think is the best method for disciplining a young teenager? We don't want to rule by force, but we also cannot tolerate her snippy, entitled behavior. We used 123 Magic and sticker reward charts when she was younger, but we need some new tips now that she's older. Please help. Signed, Need your help because I've started giving my kid the finger behind her back and I should be able to handle this. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, is, that is so great. That Nothing is wrong so with that. Uh, yeah, it happens. But it's... It, <laughs> yeah, first of all, embrace giving your kid the finger behind her back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's true. That, that, I, love that, I love that that's how this person signed off because that is the summary of where the issue crosses the line is when it's you, it, it becomes personal. I mean, that's right. And you start reacting to it as though like a stranger had started shit with you on the street. You start reacting to your own child and offspring whom you loved and gave birth to and have cared for the same way. That's a sign that, that it's gotten out of the realm of parenting and into the realm of like personal grievance, which happens, but it, uh, you can't avoid it, but it's a good thing to notice. On the one hand, yeah, this kid is totally acting like a teenager. This is apparently what teenagers do. 
Um, they don't all do it all the time and they don't all do it to this extent. And it's always hard. I, I struggle with letters, all letters, because it's hard to know exactly how much something is or isn't happening based on what a person says, because sometimes people, you know, it could be normal change behavior that this person is like finds appalling. And so they're like, she gave me attitude and she's snippy with me. Um, or it could be that the person is really, this kid is really just like an asshole 24 hours, seven days a week. And this person is describing it accurately or even under reporting. You never know. And in a situation like this, I do think that um, sort of volume matters a lot because all kids are going to do that to some extent, but not all kids are going to do it all the time. However, one of the big things that we really stressed, and I think this has helped a certain percentage of the time, is that there's a difference between how, like, there's a difference between what's okay to feel and what's okay to do. And that we don't always get to do everything we feel like doing. That's not how this works. And to be angry at your parents is fine. To feel frustrated or annoyed or embarrassed with your parents is fine. To be rude to the people that are providing you with food, clothing, and shelter on a consistent basis is not fine. And so we get to separate out that behavior from that feeling. It's fine if you don't necessarily like like me or think I'm great or want to bond with me the way you used to. But this kind of attitude behavior stuff is not okay. And so that's what we're here to talk about. We're not here to talk about how you feel because that's in your head. I don't belong in your head. I'm not a part of that. But I, I do belong with the way you behave in this house. And so I think that the first step of disciplining is like making that separation. I do think that you get to say, look, I understand that like you're not happy with this. But if you do this again, this is. A, I mean, the consequences are pretty self-explanatory. That phone, that's not yours because I'm paying for that. I will grab that phone. This ride that you want to the mall, that's not happening because I'm the one giving you, right? You will not leave this house for a week. Seriously, you need to get it together. And I, and like, of course, kid gets, kids get frustrated with that, but that's a part of parenting. And my experience, I think that um, separating out the feeling from the behavior and recognizing that, look, my job is to teach you what is appropriate social behavior. And my job is to teach you how to interact with people in your life, some of which you are feeling great about, some of which you are not feeling great about, but you must recognize that they've been good to you. I think that teaching that is an important sort of like coping skill for kids. And we're trying to like teach it. You're not going to get 100% compliance with that all the time. That's not going to make your kids suddenly stop giving you teenager attitude because there's no 100% with this thing. That's kind of what I was saying in Triumphs and Fails. I would say even even with Georgia, well, with both kids, we're like 80% of the time, they're super well-behaved. 20% of the time, they are appalling and I cannot understand what is happening. And I think that's probably the ratio most parents feel like they get with their teenagers. So I think that's that. The last thing I'll say is that if it is as extreme as it's, this letter makes it sound, it's possible that there are other issues there, that actual depression may be a factor. It's possible that there's like family issues, resentment lingering things that your kid is resentful towards at you for that you maybe have done or haven't done or ways that you've, you know, and so this kid may actually want to talk about some of that stuff, but doesn't feel like she has the time or space to do it. And certainly not with you. The way we handled that is that we'd left the door open. If you feel upset with me or angry with me about something bigger than just me asking you to clear the table, and you want to talk about it, you you should talk about it because it'd be good. 
you can either talk about it with us, or if not, we can figure out another place for you to talk about it. But if that feeling is there, it's something that like it's possible to address that, and it might be helpful for you. Just putting that out on the table. In the meantime, you really need to like fix your face and stop giving me attitude. I love you, or give me your phone. You know, what I mean, I think that's kind of like how we go about it. What do you guys think? You know, one word that sticks out here to me that. It, it sort of speaks to what you're saying about taking it personally, but also putting something on a kid that is hard to, to get them there. And if you use this word in particular, because there's so much resistance to it, is the word respect and respectful. Yeah. Um, yep. That is not something that, you know, it's something that we sort of expect by default just from the people in our lives all around us. But the word takes on new meaning when you use it with a teenage kid who, frankly, uh, at 13 or 14 or whenever this happens with kids, it happens with a lot of teenage kids, this kind of like hating your parents, not wanting to be seen with them, they don't feel that respect that you want them to demonstrate in terms of behavior. And that is why, as Carvel says, it's so important when you're talking to your daughter about this to say, listen, um, I've decided to not take it personally that clearly you don't want to hang out with us socially right now. There's something off-putting about us to you. You are allowed to feel that way. I'm not telling you that you have to think I'm the greatest, coolest, most awesome person in the world. But I am telling you that, you know, a baseline of civility and niceness is expected as the minimum because I don't want to drive you places when you're an asshole to me in the car the whole way. I don't want to. Just like you don't want to walk with me down the sidewalk because there's something about me that's turning you off. Like, this is a two-way street here. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we could make a deal. Like, I'm going to respect that you don't want to hang out with us, that you don't want to, you know, interface with us in public or whatever. (laughs) But the baseline is, you can't be a dick to me. You can't be a dick to grandma. You just got to fake being nice and just, you know, act out the sort of civility that your teachers expect of you at school, that anybody that you met that was new in your life, that you would definitely afford them. And just let's understand that I think there's more going on here. I think you're having a hard time. I'd love to be here to talk about it with you. But in the meantime, until you're ready for that, I don't want to drive you anywhere. I don't really feel like paying your phone bill. I don't really feel like doing all these things that you have become accustomed to because you're just not nice to me. Like you wouldn't do these things for one of your friends if your friend was treating you the way you're treating us right now. So, I mean, I think that kind of telling her some of the stuff that you told us in your letter would be good. But I'd be very careful of that word, respect. It is a triggering word mm-hmm. for adolescent kids mm-hmm. uh, because it's a word they hear all the time and are not they're not actually afforded it in uh, in in. You know, they're not they're not they're not given respect in a lot of the situations. They don't feel like they are because they are sort of living under an authoritarian regime at school where they have to do what they're told at home. They have. And that doesn't feel like respect when you're a kid. It's very hard to make that distinction. And that can be a very triggering word. So I would just be careful about using it or maybe just avoid using it and just frame it in terms of like. You know, baseline niceness, baseline uh, being an asshole and like, don't be an asshole. And it, and I will continue to drive you places. Be an asshole. And I'm not going to want to. You're going to have to figure it out for yourself. It sounds like dumb and, and simple, but sometimes just making it about that and just that is the way to kind of get to the stuff going on in the background. And, you know, faking the niceness or at least understanding that that is the baseline expectation can be the first step to then when you're having a day that's going the way that you hoped it would go to saying, hey, is there something else going on with you? Like behind all this, Mm -hmm. you know, we've been working on this, like just being nicer thing for a couple of weeks, but like there's something else going on that we don't know about. Um, And just take that moment to address it, not when she's so worked up. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I think this is all really good advice and I, I really agree with pretty much all of it. Um, it is astonishing to me sometimes like that. I, that for long stretches, my daughter will talk to me in a way where if it was any other person in my life, I would walk away and just never interact with that person again. <laughs> like if a boss treated me that way, I would quit the job. You know, if I was on Twitter, I would unfollow and block. I wish I could unfollow and block my kid sometimes. Um, but the only other thing I'd add is I would also hearken back Carvel to your triumph, fail triumph. Um, and how you noted that sometimes your job as a parent, the most important job is to just not make things worse. Mm -hmm. And the one other piece of advice I would give this letter writer is that to make this work and to get the results that you want to get, you are probably going to have to like turn the other cheek and eat some shit mm. way more often than you want to in than you ever would in any other social situation. Mm. You can't with a, your a, even an average 13 year old, you cannot respond to every single incident of rudeness the way you wish you could, <laughs> because you will just be literally setting yourself up for an endless battle. You won't have time to do exactly 50% of the housework as required by law. <laughs> like you just won't, there, you, there won't be any other time. You will just be constantly fighting with them and, and endlessly ramping up the antagonism. And so sometimes you just got to fucking take it. Like, and it's my, I think probably my least favorite thing about parenting has been coming to the realization that sometimes I just got to fucking take it. And I hate it so much, but like my decision to do that sometimes I think is a real reason why my now 14 year old is much nicer to us on a regular basis because we stopped freaking out every single time she was not yep. nice to us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's too, it's too much. And like, I, one of the main things that I, I, I use the word learn loosely in this following example, but I've, but I think that as I think about all the time I've been in the show and been talking about what I've learned about parenting, the, one of the main things I've learned, particularly with Ezra, although less with, less with Georgia is that if you, Ezra, like, George is really good at pleasing adults just 90% of the time, and then 10% of the time she's good at, like, being horrific. And Ezra's not as good as, good at like, quote-unquote pleasing adults because he just doesn't understand, man. We, you know, like, it's society, man. And, you know, he just, he has theories about why he shouldn't be made to do stuff, which he's which is exactly age-appropriate. And they're great theories because he's a really smart kid. But he doesn't, the net result is that he doesn't do stuff that, makes adults pleased all the time. And so what I learned is that I, when he was younger, like in seventh grade, sixth grade, I took it upon myself to consistently address every single one of those issues because I thought that that level of consistency and presence and never letting things slide was exactly the kind of consistent parenting he needed to understand and so on and so forth. I had all these theories about how it should work, theories that I had tested because I worked with kids in lockup facilities for a long time before I was a parent. I did that for 15 years. And so I had a pretty clear idea of some stuff around teenagers. And so when I was working, with, like when I was with Ezra, I, I said, okay, this kind of consistent stuff, this is what it is. Around ninth grade, Ezra said to me, Dad, I feel like our whole relationship is you telling me what I'm doing wrong. And 
I my of course my ego response was that's ridiculous. I love you. I love you. So what about when we went for ice cream? You're wrong. What about skateboarding? <laughs> that's wrong. The what you just said is wrong. And how dare you? You know, like that really was like how it felt inside. And I, but I Ezra's a smart kid, and so when he says stuff, I stop and think about it because he's saying that's what it feels like. If I address every single issue, it just feels that way. And he feels defeated because he can't do stuff the way adults want him to all the time. And nothing exacerbates that defeat more than having an adult deciding to point out every fucking time he doesn't do the shit because it just makes him feel like he's fucked. And that leads to that leads him down a whole fucking rabbit hole. And so when I say I've learned that, I mean, I've learned it intellectually. I still, you know, I've like 99 percent learned it intellectually. I've like 70% learned it in my actions because it's yep. there's still a part of me that gets triggered. My ego is like, you can't let your kid talk to you that way. And then in the back of my mind, I've got random family members who I haven't seen in 17 years who live 3,000 miles away who are in my head being like, you're just going to let him talk to you that way? Like those, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I have all this extraneous noise in my head that makes me unsure about what to do in a given moment. And so it's like when there's all those noise, when there's all that noise, I have to have one or two guiding principles that I return to. And over time, I've learned that my guiding principle has to be my relationship with this person is important. My connection with them is important. Our trust is important. The fact that they know I love them is important. The fact that they feel safe with me is important. And so that becomes the guiding principle. I don't know what that's going to turn out to in the long run. Maybe when the kids are 40, I'll be like, oh, my God, I fucked everything up. I should have locked them in a room. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm just taking a guess. And that's what parenting is. It's guesses. But I think it's really important to prioritize having a relationship with your kids over, like, calling every single thing out. You have to pick and choose your spots. I would drop dead if my mother-in-law knew the way that my daughter speaks to me sometimes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I always have her voice in my head yes, when that happens. Totally. Uh, which is how my daughter has learned, well, when you do say something rude to mom or dad in front of Kiki, <laughs> boy, they 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 jumped on your throat about that shit. Yeah, kids learn how it works. And it's like it's a different generation. <laughs> when I was when I was growing up, you just got popped. I mean if you just got out of line, some you just get popped that's just it was that quick and so you just didn't get out of line with the adults you got out of line elsewhere and we're not doing it that way now and so we're seeing stuff in the house that we don't that we haven't seen before and uh i you know i admit that a lot of times i don't quite know what we're doing but we're kind of going by faith can i just give like a very small example of like what you're talking about because like people will say like what does that mean what it look like what it looks like in my house is this it's time for dinner I call upstairs to Teddy, who's in his room doing whatever, and I'm like, Teddy, and like 80% of the time what I get back is, I'm going to lean back from the microphone now, what? Right? What? Like as if I, <laughs> exactly, right? Totally. totally. And if I, if I then say, wait, why are you yelling at me? If I, then, if I then engage in that, then we have to have a whole fucking conversation about the fact that I've interrupted his video game, and I have this, and I have this, and he just didn't have his headphones on. He, if I just instead say, hey, I just want to let you know dinner is ready. Then ultimately he comes down and 80% of the time he's like, I'm really sorry, Elda, you just said, and that was inappropriate, blah, 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 blah. And then it's over. <laughs> or he just doesn't say anything mm -hmm. about it and we have dinner and he's fine and it's over, right? But like, mm -hmm. it is like, it is like, 
the 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 and that sound yeah i mean i could just say you're not allowed to do that but then what what happens the next time he does it right we don't punch people anymore mm. in 2019 we don't pop them <laughs> we don't spank them we don't whatever um like it is just and sometimes his brother look at me and be like what why is he doing that yes, and i'm like totally. i don't know why i don't know let's have dinner like yeah. no like i don't yeah. know why there's nothing let's just have yeah. dinner let's like not like make yeah. that what our dinner is about let's just have it and usually it ends up being completely fine and it's like when i sort of let go of the what it changed a lot about how those dinners went man it just changed a lot so yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a thing all right yeah. uh good luck Good luck to our dear listener. Need your help because I have started giving my kid the finger behind her back and I should be able to handle this. You should continue giving your kid the finger behind she her back. She deserves it. But we also think <laughs> you can handle this. Yeah, she fucking deserves it. Thank you so much. If you have a question for us, once again, send it to mom and dad at slate.com. It is now the time in the show in which we recommend. Rebecca, do you have a recommendation for us? I do. And the slight reservation here is that with all apps... If you get the free one, it's annoying sometimes, but it's still cool. Uh, so if you get this app or one of these apps and you don't like it because the ads pop up and because it asks you to pay for things, I'm sorry in advance. That just is an experience with apps now, and there are very few of them that don't do this. But I recently discovered that there are a whole bunch of like coloring book apps, uh, which are super fun mm, way to kind of mm. like pass the time and do them. You know, if you can, uh, the ones that I like, there are two that I like, actually three. Um, I really like this one called Coloring book for me which is a terrible name but it's really they have really good designs and there's also one called colorfy which is um also has really good designs and one called color therapy there's a three that i've tried um but basically it's just like really cool coloring book designs like abstract designs pictures and the way that you fill them is you just like tap the spot and it's coloring uh satisfying in a way that you get to see like your version of a design and if someone else does the same one you can compare but it's also just a really relaxing thing to do with your hands uh and you know if you have a, a kid a teenager or a kid who likes to color or like do art um it's just one of those great like mindless apps that like both kids and adults can enjoy and one of the things that it's weird about it that i don't understand is like all these apps say like coloring for adults i don't know why they say that like there's no dirty pictures or anything i guess the idea is that they're like complicated (laughs) but you can just use your fingers to stretch the screen and make the thing bigger so it's really not a big deal like it doesn't have to be for adults so anyway ignore that branding uh get one of these coloring book uh uh, apps and uh please if you don't want to get the paid version don't give me crap about all the free ads that pop up it is annoying but it's just part of the experience hmm. for adults just means that it doesn't have any pictures of <laughs> probably <laughs> <laughs> pretty much yeah, that's all it means uh carvel do you have a recommendation for us i do i'm going to recommend a thing to do rather than a specific media property or book uh which is that i'm currently watching <laughs> all of the avengers movies in a row in order I'm not doing that. I'm not recommending doing that because, quite frankly, that's tedious and obscene. And I, it's it's taken me a long time. And uh, I can't quite get over just, like, the, just the wild, bro-y, pro-America, like, military-industrial complex, just like flag-waviness of all these movies. And it's just like, are you fucking kidding me? And there's some interesting storytelling on, on the overall series scale, though not a lot of great storytelling episode by episode. However, the reason I'm doing this is to bond with my son, who is really into these movies and has talked about them every day of his life since 2008 when Iron Man came out. 
He has never not launched into a full-throated disquisition about the Marvel <laughs> universe, not once. And and he's subjected all us, uh, all of us in the family, to multiple monologues. And I've been like, yeah, yeah, mm, interesting. Okay, yeah, yeah. Here's my thoughts. And finally, I just was like, I actually want to be able to talk about this with him. So I'm watching all of the whole thing so that we can talk about it, so I can understand the details of the stories and all that. And so I'm, what I'm recommending is watching something that your children is important to them, but that you don't like as a way of connecting with them. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> That's, my, That's my recommendation. <laughs> do we have to do it for 60 hours? It's a lot. I get to spread it out. They're not, I mean, they're, you know, they're not, it's not, it's not they're horrific. Fine. There's some horrific stuff. They're fine. But I mean, but I just, they're so important to him. And he thinks so much about them. And what he's thinking about is the good stuff about it. He's thinking about the ways characters are developed, story arcs, the way things fold into other things, heroes' quest, journeys, all that stuff. He That's what he's thinking about. And so that's cool. He's sort of not catching on to some of the sexism, uh, some of the like pro-America sentiment, some of the weird like racist, like other country, othering orientalism stuff that goes on. I'm trying to put him onto it. He's a little bit, he, he's not with it. That's fine, but, uh, you know, whatever. It's worse things can happen. The point is, I finally get to have something positive with my son that we can bond over, other than his grades, which we're not bonding over. (laughs) (laughs) My recommendation is kind of the opposite. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I have definitely spent my fair share of time watching things I don't care about with my children, so I feel like I'm covered on that front. Um. But my recommendation is for a specific movie that my child had no particular interest in, but we made her watch anyway. Um, Harper, our younger daughter, has he just has a lot of activities and does a lot of sleepovers and stuff. And Lyra, our older daughter, does less of that. And so uh, there are usually a couple of nights a month in which Harper is gone and Lyra is home. And we try and use those nights to watch with Lyra – Something surprising, like a surprising Mm -hmm. movie that we really think she might like that she's probably never heard of. You know, and she has a pretty sophisticated sense of narrative technique and uh, and she likes to think of herself as, you know, sort of a connoisseur of weird art. And so it's been fun trying to think of things that that she might enjoy. And I've tried to move past like, you would love the Goonies. (laughs) You would love Back to the Future. What stuff for my childhood, but childhood. And I'm now trying to find other stuff. So I'm sort of like, I mean, I've been sort of going through criterions with her Mm. to find things that, that might surprise her. And sometimes it really succeeds and sometimes it doesn't. But the one movie where it succeeded beyond my wildest dreams in which she got exactly what I was hoping she would get out of it was the movie Being John Malkovich. Huh. Nice. Uh, which classic. Came out in 1999. <laughs> uh, a great year for movies. Um, and, uh, and, you know, is about a, a, a a famous person she's never even heard of. She has no idea who the hell John Malkovich is. We just explained in advance. He's a real person who is a real famous actor. Here we go. Mm-hmm. And the, which is watching her take this movie in and like freak out 
during it mm. was so rewarding from a parenting perspective. <laughs> Just like watching her like hop around the room and laugh and be like, what? And mm. scream. Mm. And then at one point, like maybe two thirds of the movie, but right before the scene where Malkovich goes into Malkovich and everyone says Malkovich and everyone is Malkovich, <laughs> uh, she just turned to us and she goes, I, I didn't even know a movie could be like this. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, what, how that felt so good. Mm. Um, so anyways, if you like have a kid who's interested in, in weird stuff, um, and who you think is old enough to handle the fact that there's some weird puppet sex <laughs> and a woman getting locked in a cage with a chimp, um, you should absolutely watch Bean Malkovich with her because it might blow her mind too. Hmm. And that's our show. Uh, once again, if you have a question you want to ask us on the air, please leave us a message at 424-255-7833 or email us at slate.com. Join us on Facebook. Just search for Slate Parenting. Mom and Dad Are Fighting is produced by Jessica Jupiter. For Carvel and Rebecca, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks so much for listening.